black swan, as we all know now. And that's, you know, by the time the black swan happens, it'll be too late for you to own gold. You have to buy it now as a safety precaution and then just be patient. Hi, and welcome to Wealthy On. My name is James Connor, and today my guest is Pierre Lasson. Pierre was the co-founder of Franco Nevada, the world's largest precious metals royalty company, and also past president of Newmont Mining and the former chair of the World Gold Council. So there is no one else who can provide a better perspective on precious metals and how they can be used to benefit your portfolio during times of economic uncertainty. Pierre, thank you very much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Pierre, I want to focus this discussion on precious metals and more specifically gold and how it can be used to provide protection to your portfolio against the constant erosion of inflation. And when we want exposure to gold, we can use many different products, including buying physical gold or gold mining stocks or a gold royalty company. And given you co-founded the world's first precious metals royalty company, I want to start right here. What exactly is a royalty company? A royalty company is uh, very different than an operator. It's actually closer to the physical metal itself. So a pure royalty is a percentage of the top line of a producer. So if you have, let's say, a 4% royalty, you will get, and the producer produces like 100,000 ounces of gold a year, you get 4% of 100,000 ounces, which is 4,000 ounces, of gold delivered to your account completely cost-free. So that is the particularity of a royalty. Now there's another form of royalty called a stream royalty, where the royalty company gets a percentage of the production, whatever it is on a yearly basis, uh, at a fixed cost, a cost that's uh, fixed by contract when the streaming is uh, created. So those are the two forms of uh, royalties that we have today in the market. So you made mention that a royalty company is totally different from an operating company and more like owning the physical gold, but there's many advantages to investing in a royalty company. Can you just review what these advantages are? Well, the advantage number one is that a royalty company has no capital expenditures. So there's no the, the, op, the, the, the producer, the operator, cannot call on the royalty company to join in in the capex. And when we know today that, you know, to try to build anything, it's like a billion, two billion, up to, you know, like you look at some of these numbers, they're absolutely enormous. So there's no demand on terms of capital. Uh, second, there's no inflation, uh, because when you have a percentage of the top production, in the case of the pure royalty, you're not affected by inflation. In fact, you gain by it because, of course, the gold price keeps going up and you have no costs. So you're totally protected from uh, inflation. And then finally, you, which is the best part of royalty, is the optionality that you get from uh, owning this uh, royalty and the land that it's attached to. So I just want to examine some of those points in a little more detail. You made mention of the fact that once you buy a royalty, you do not have to put up any further capital for CapEx. 
And so if I want to provide an example, let's say if you have a royalty on a mine that produces 100,000 ounces a year and they want to grow that to 200,000 or 300,000 ounces a year, that will take a lot of capex. And as a royalty company, you don't have to put up one additional penny for those additional ounces. That is correct. So that's a major benefit. And to your point, the capex are associated with building a mine now is many, many billions of dollars, and it can take many years also to get permitting. Uh, does a royal company have to concern itself with permits? No, I mean, the, the royalty, all you do is cash checks. So all you need is really good auditors to make sure that, you know, you get the amount that you're paid. But, uh, you know, the uh, royalty company does not have any say in the operations. So you may mention of the fact that the number one or primary advantage is optionality. Can you expand on that and maybe provide an example? Yeah, I say to uh, people that if you can get uh, free optionality, uh, make, you know, I can show you a way to become a millionaire very quickly. Uh, there are three forms of optionality in the mining business. Uh, there's price optionality, there's land optionality, and then the third one, I call it time optionality. So price optionality, it's very easy to understand in the sense that, you know, if the gold price goes up from $1,800 to $2,000, well, you've been given a $200 lift and the royalty holder gets all of it at no cost. So that's like a 10% boost in your revenue without, again, having any costs associated with it. So even if the operator has inflation and, you know, the margin for the operator may end up being exactly the same, your margin has just gone up 10% because the gold price has gone up. So if you think that the gold price is going to 3000 well, you're going to get the entire benefit of the move from today's price, 2000 to 3000 delivered to the royalty holder. So that's a huge advantage. The, the other one is land optionality. And that one, you, uh, it, it's interesting. In our business, there's no analyst whatsoever who put any value attached to the land owned by the mining companies. And their reason is that, well, we don't know, you know, how to calculate the land optionality. So you don't get any value for it. But yet, from a royalty standpoint, a royalty owner, once a company has spent, like, let's say, $2 billion to put a mine into production, you know, it, it's, it's put up all the capex and, it, you know, it, it erected all these structures and now you're doing whatever like 20,000 tons a day or 50,000 tons a day well the operator will do everything it can to keep on going so when they start production for example they may have like you know let's say 5 million ounces of reserve but the first day you start mining your reserve are going away so what do the operator do they explore, they keep exploring around the land to be able to keep mining. And all the exploration comes at no cost to the royalty holder. So you don't have to put up as a royalty holder any money for the exploration. And yet you get all the benefits in the world and then some. And 
Of course, my favorite story is the uh, Franco Nevada story, you know, how we got started. The first royalty that I ever bought was on a piece of land in the Carlin Trent of Nevada, which had at that point in time, approximately 500,000 ounces of resource and about 300,000 ounces of reserve. And I paid $2 million for that royalty. It was a, a 4% royalty off the top. And there was also a 5% net profit interest royalty attached to it. And uh, we're talking here in 1987, and 19, sorry, 1985. And um, the property was sold to a company called Barrick, uh, then the property at the time was producing about 30,000, between 30 and 35,000 ounces of uh, gold from a bunch of small open pits. And the property was sold to Barrick. Barrick comes in, start exploring, and lo and behold, they find a 50 million ounce gold deposit. And the production went up to 3 million ounces a year. So that royalty that I bought for 2 million has paid out over a billion dollars since and there's still probably another half a billion to come. And that's what I call land optionality. I mean, that is the ultimate, okay? I mean, like, yeah, I don't want to give you the impression you do that every day. This is the best deal I've ever done, and unfortunately, it was my first deal, okay? I don't think to be repeated quite the same, but we've done it at Franco, Nevada three times, where we bought assets for $2 million and turned them into, you know, literally billions of dollars. So it does happen. And that's why I love land optionality. Uh, and you, you know, when we buy a royalty, usually we get it for free because nobody knows how to calculate it. And, you know, um, it comes with the royalty. And then the other one is time. Time is always, once you own a royalty on a piece of land, it stays there forever. And so times may change and, you know, the, the, the new technology may come in where all of a sudden the, the 10, 20 million ounce that you have, like, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't mine them. And then now they have new technology and lo and behold, it can be mined and time is on your side. So those are, to my mind, the, the, the really incredible aspect of royalty companies. Pierre, that was a fascinating story. I just want to summarize the benefits of owning a royalty company. And first of all, there's diversification. You own a large number of assets. Second of all, you're not exposed to capital risk or an increase in costs at all. And then you have this optionality benefit. Are there any other advantages that we should be aware of? No, you've got it uh, about right. You know, the fact that, you know, as a royalty holder, you benefit from inflation uh, because you have no cost or fixed cost if, if it's a stream royalty. And you have no exposure to capital costs, to exploration costs, uh, but yet you get all the benefit of all of that. And I want you to get your views now on the price of gold. It's depending on what day of the week it is, it's around $2,000 an ounce. And some people aren't too happy with that performance, given the growth in the money supply over the last few years. Uh, a lot of people think it should be up a lot more. What are your thoughts? Oh, I mean, I think that gold is at a new high. It just hit a new high like a couple of weeks ago, like $2,080. I think it's incredible. 
And uh, I couldn't be happier with uh, where gold is, uh, is right now and its performance. Uh, but uh, I think what the people are reflecting is the fact that the gold equities are uh, at a 50% discount to where they should be relative to the gold price. And that is really unexplicable. I mean, I, you know, I've been in the business for 40 some years and I don't understand why there's such a disconnect between the gold equities and uh, the, the, the current gold price. And when I think of uh, the, uh, the, the next year, two years, um, you know, the, the, the gold price, it, it's like an insurance policy. I mean, your house doesn't go on fire every day, but you do buy the insurance policy in case it happens. And it's a bit the same thing with, with gold. We all know that, you know, the, the U.S., um, for example, current budget deficit is going to be something like $1.8 trillion. And over the next five years, it's like $2 trillion a year. And they already have $34 trillion of debt. I mean, when I was a kid, those numbers were reserved for astronomy. Okay, like, I mean, they are so big. They're so huge. It's just unbelievable. And at some point, um, the U.S. dollar will become suspect. But, it, you know, we all know it is suspect. But until you have a break, until something happens, um, you may see the dollar continue to, you know, to, to drift sideways with its current valuation. But like it happened in 1971, like it happened in, you know, two, uh, in 19, I uh, can't remember when they had to have the Plaza Accord. Um, there, you know, there, there is dislocation event that occurs. Black Swan, as we all know now, and that's, you know, by the time the Black Swan happens, it'll be too late for you to own gold. You have to buy it now as a safety precaution and then just be patient. You can't, you know, like um, think that, you know, I'm going to buy it today and then it's all going to happen tomorrow. This is a slow moving train wreck. OK, and, you know, it's it's happening, but you have to have a bit of patience. But two thousand dollar gold right now, it's really good. You made mention of the fact that the gold producers are severely underperforming the gold price and. Do you think a lot of that has to do with wage inflation and also fuel prices? You know, I don't think so, James. I think that uh, when you look at um, the uh, the producer, they've been able to contain costs by a long shot. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the total cost to produce an ounce of gold is actually coming down. I mean, it, it peaked at around, uh, on, on average, it peaked at around you know, like $1,200, and now it's drifting back to 1100 And cash costs are closer to $800 an ounce. And some producers are as low as 500 cash costs, and all-in costs of like 700 And yet, you know, they, they discount a gold price of like, you know, $1,500 gold when it's over 2000 So... Who's right? I mean, is the equities right where the gold price will come down to fifteen hundred, or is the gold market right and the gold equities will, you know, double from where they are today because of you know they're like at fifty percent of their intrinsic value at two thousand dollar gold. 
So as we mentioned on the onset, there's many different ways to invest in gold or to get gold exposure. And I'm curious to see how you invest. Do you prefer royalty companies or producers, or do you also invest in developers and explorcos? Um, you know, look, I, I have a vested interest in uh, Franco, Nevada. Uh, so, of course, I invest in royalty company. I think that the uh, Franco, Nevada business model is the best business model in the world, bar none. I mean, like, you know, the company, uh, we, we have essentially 42 employees and uh, with revenue of over, you know, like a billion a year, like on, on a revenue per employee, I think we're probably the best in the world. And, uh, you know, the business model, and we have like over 100 royalties Actually, it's over, like, I think it's 400, but operating, I think it's like, like around 100. So in, incredible diversification, as you point out. Uh, and then uh, I have also um, uh, intermediate size uh, companies. And um, I have, you know, some uh, development company, but there, I will remind you, you know, you probably are aware of the, the, the curve that I invented like back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it's called the Lassonde curve. And uh, it shows the, uh, the share price over time, what happens, for example, if you have a discovery. So let's say the share price is five cents, I'll go up to, you know, let's say $20. Uh, and with all the hype and everything else, and then it comes back down to like five. And then there's a long period where, you know, once you've done the initial reserve, and then you have to have the feasibility study, and then you have to fund the, uh, the construction, um, today that zone is becoming the killing fields. Uh, because with the permitting process being so long, very few companies have the backbone, have the financing to last, you know, like that three, four, five years uh, you know, you, you take, for example, this morning, uh, Barrick announced that they finally got uh, the record of decision from the Nevada uh, Bureau of Land Management for Gold Rush. Well, they've been waiting for, I think, five years. Okay, like, you know, so a company like Barrick can sustain that, but any other company who doesn't have the cash can't do it. So those are becoming the killing fields where... If you're shareholders, you probably going to get diluted down to nothing. Uh, and usually the best place to, to buy a stock in that range is once it's fully funded, fully permitted, and about to start construction. And hopefully you have confidence in management that they can build on cost and on time. Okay, because... That's where the other big hiccups happen. So if you have a good management, it's fully, and usually at that point, you can buy a stock for 50% of its net asset value, and you can double your money if you're patient over like a two-year period. And so those are sort of like the, the kind of things that goes through my mind when I you know, select stock for a portfolio. Interesting points. And Pierre, in the past, you have said that junior mining companies are like fireflies. And I want you to expand on that and tell us what you mean by that statement. 
Well, back in uh, 1990, I wrote a book. I took like, you know, six months, nine months out of my life, actually, to write a book. And it was one paragraph on Junior Mining Company. And I did a 10-year study at that time of Junior Mining Companies uh, from 1980 to 1990. What happens to them? Okay. And I had about 3,000 companies. And don't forget, like the 80s were you know, rock and roll for the mining industry, okay? It was the discovery of Hemlo. I mean, like, you know, the, uh, the Voices Bay discovery. I mean, there was like discoveries. There was like money pouring in. And the number of companies peaked at around 3,000 junior mining company. And what I found out is that of, out of that, only 1% of these companies ever, ever made it to production. And the other ones, they get reorganized, they get bankrupt, they, you know, like they kept alive by the promoter, just, you know, they're, they're walking dead, if you want, but they're kept alive. And all that promotion, you know, like these drill holes that, yeah, they're good, but they don't amount to anything when you start to look at, you know, where's the beef, okay? Like, you know, and uh, that's why I call them fireflies. And unfortunately, that is the, the, the reality of our industry. And it's not, a, I mean, Mother Nature has given the same odds to all businesses. And I, I don't want to disparage our business because if you look at technology, same, same odds. Okay, it's one in a thousand, one in 10,000. If you look at biotech, same odds. We're no different than any other sector in the world. But we just have to really, you know, take that and put it in the back of our mind. When you're buying a junior mining company, uh, an exploration company, you're rolling the dice like anybody else. Okay. You know, and you could go to Vegas and do just as well. Okay. And you know, if you like the promoter and you like the place and you want to have fun, by all means, go ahead. But you have to understand the odds are not in your favor. You can have a lot more fun in Vegas too. I think so, but Hey, <laughs> It's a lot easier to talk about the stock you own than, you know, what you've done in Vegas. Pierre, we can't have a discussion on gold without discussing Bitcoin. And quite often it's referred to as the new gold or digital gold. And Bitcoin is up over 120% on the year. What are your thoughts on Bitcoin? And do you think it's become the new gold and maybe it's taken away a lot of interest in gold? Well, I, I will turn it back to you with a question. You know, uh, are central banks buying Bitcoins or are they buying gold? Well, the reality is that they're buying gold. Okay. And central banks believe that gold is money. And that's why they're beefing up their reserve, whether it's China, Russia, you know, all the central banks that are not attached to the dollar. They want gold reserve because it's the only money that uh, the U.S. can't get their hands on. They can have the gold bars in, you know, uh, Beijing or in Moscow or in, you know, uh, Turkey, and the U.S. cannot have access to it. And uh, given what's happened over the last few years, and the very high-ended nature of the United States vis-a-vis -vis other countries, uh, central banks have figured out that, you know what, we need to diversify and you know, the way to do it is with gold. And so they have, you know, put the stamp of approval, gold is money. 
Uh, Bitcoin, it's a mathematical equation in space, okay? It's like, it benefits a few people, mostly um, unsavory. Uh, it's not regulated. The day it's regulated, it'll probably, you know, I wouldn't say it's going to die. There's a place for it. Uh, but it has no intrinsic value. It, you know, it has, uh, I, I guess, to me, I can't fathom why anyone would buy Bitcoin. Uh, it's a nice imagination, but uh, long run, not sure where it's going to go. And I guess the other big advantage to owning gold is you can hold it in your hand. Whereas you can't hold Bitcoin. And gold is universal. I mean, you know, uh, if you unplug your computer, how are you going to get access to your Bitcoin? Okay. Like, you know, if you're in Gaza right now, you need to get out. Or you're in the Ukraine, you need to get out. Like, you know, your computer was blown to pieces. Electricity doesn't work. What do you have? Nothing. Gold, you got it in your hands. You can run with it. You can, you know, buy things. Okay. Like anybody will accept gold. It's a universal value. You know. Go in the middle of Africa where you're Bitcoin, try to buy something. Well, you know what? Like take a hike, okay? Gold, everybody everywhere knows what it's worth. Okay, the price is posted, it's international, it's global. It has, you know, that aura that Bitcoin will never, never have. Pierre, I want to get your thoughts on M&A now. We've seen a lot of M&A happening in the past few years with a lot of the large producers. Newmont, Barrick, and Agnico have all been very acquisitive. And Newmont recently closed on the Newcrest deal. But I want to get your thoughts on this and, and why are they being so acquisitive as, to, as opposed to growing their reserves through exploration? Well, the answer is a bit of what I just said earlier. The fact that right now uh, the entire sector is discounted by 50%. So it's becoming cheaper to buy the ounces on Bay Street or Wall Street than it is to put your own money to try to find the ounces. So when you can buy reserve ounces for less than $100 an ounce, you know, and resource ounces for like $20 an ounce. You can't find stuff. You can't find gold for that price. So it's cheaper to go buy the companies and cheaper to go, you know, buy on Bay Street than try to find them. And that's what's happening, especially for good, good deposit. <laughs> you know, anything over 5 million ounces is quite rare. And anything over like 15 million ounces of reserve is very rare. And uh, the cost to find those are in the hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So if you can buy them for a hundred, like bless, that's what you do. And I think these companies are acting very smartly in, uh, you know, buying these, these companies. And do you think there's an element, you mentioned how rare it is, but do you think that's also an element is that there's just no more large deposits to discover? Oh, I think there's, you know, plenty of large deposit yet to be discovered, uh, but that's the key. It's like yet to, okay? Like, you know, someone's got to spend the money and to and go find them. And, uh, you know, if you look at the record of discovery, the big mining companies usually find about half the deposit and then the, the junior intermediate find the other half, but they have to be funded. And right now, the junior market is like, you know, it's an, almost impossible to get money. So, um, again, the best thing is to just to go and, uh, you know, buy them in the market. But 
No, I think you look at Canada. Canada has has the second largest land mass in the world. Have we explored that, you know, to the point where we can say there's no more? Not a chance. There's still enormous amount of places where we have not been, we have not explored. There will be, you know, great discovery to come, but um, you need the patience and you need the money. And when a company is burning, you know, like 5 million ounces a year, uh, when I say burning, you know, producing 5 million ounces a year, they have to replace six a year. Uh, well, five years, that's 30 million ounces. I mean, like, it, where do you get that kind of deposit? And sometimes it's just easier to buy someone who's already got one and assure yourself of the next like 20 years to give yourself time to find that next big one. Pierre, that's a good overview of gold. I want to move on now and discuss copper with you. You're a big believer in copper. Why? Uh, it's very simple, uh, James. Uh, there was a study done by Shell a number of years ago, and uh, they pointed out that uh, today, 80% of the terminal energy that we use is carbon-based. That is petroleum, oil, you know, coal. And 20% is electricity. And if we want to get to a green world and limit emission, carbon emission to, you know, a certain amount, you have to flip that on its head and you have to go to 80% terminal energy being electricity and only 20% being carbon based. Well, when you look at, you know, terminal energy, 80%, that means you're going to need electricity you're going to need, you know, electricity distribution system, and it's all copper. I mean, like, you know, if you look at your buildings, all the air conditioning, all the uh, elevators, all the transportation, your car, it's all moving because of copper. So when you look at the copper demand over the next 20 years to get there, uh, we essentially need to more than double the current production. And... Um, you know, where are you going to come up with mines that produce two, three hundred thousand tons of copper a year to replace the depletion and and double the production? So like this year, it's pretty good. We have like, you know, a couple of really new sizable mines that are coming in production next year, uh, maybe one. But then after that, there's a void. And you look at that and you say to yourself, like, we're going to have to, and the time to permit, I mean, you can find them, maybe, but then it's like six, seven, eight years to permit, and then you build them, it's another three, four years. You're looking at like 10 to 12 years. So when I look at 2025 to 2030, I think that uh, copper in particular is going to do very, very well. I'm quite optimistic about the, the entire copper industry. So you provided a good framework on how investors can invest in gold and copper to benefit their portfolios. Now, that's, let's tie that into the economy. In the last few weeks of 2023, the market was on a tear, the stock market, the bond market, physical gold has caught a nice bid. And it's all predicated on the notion that the Fed has done lifting interest rates and they're going to start cutting. And depending on whose research you read, it could be as soon as Q1 or even Q2. What are your thoughts on the U.S. economy and as we head into 2024? 
You know, in terms of gold and copper, James, I don't think it matters what the U.S. economy is going to do or the rest of the world, because the particularly copper next year, the balance is very, very tight. Uh, and I would say the same with gold. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, I think inflation is going to be more uh, enduring than the Fed would like. I don't see interest rate coming down very quickly. Same for the rest of the world. Um, and um, the, the Fed is going to be caught in, you know, uh, a catch-22 situation where interest rate on the American debt is going to be by next year more than the entire defense budget of the United States. And uh, if... Uh, and it's going to get worse over the next five years, like a lot worse. So the Fed, at, at some point in time, they're going to do like they did in Japan. And the only reason where, why you know Japan is still alive, I mean, they have a debt to GDP of over 230%. Well, what do they do? They have you know financial repression. They keep interest rate at zero. Okay, well, that's what I call financial repression. But the Japanese are able to go and, you know, get U.S. dollars. And so they manage. Uh, and, but uh, where, if you're a U.S.-based investor, where are you going to go? Like, there's not a whole lot of places to go. You can buy some euro, but you're going to have to buy some gold at some point in time because that's the asset that, you know, you cannot repress. So I'm very optimistic, you know, no matter what. Uh, and what the economy is going to do next year. I, you know, personally, I don't know. And frankly, as I said, makes no difference. Pierre, as we wrap up, I'm going to put you on the spot now. What will do better in 2024, gold or copper? I think they're going to be very similar. I mean, I could see gold up uh, another, like easily another 10% next year, like $2,200. And uh, but I could see copper like, you know, four fifty something like this. So maybe up like 10 to 20 percent. So I'm quite uh, I'm quite bullish on both metal. And uh, just to come back for a second to me, you know, like the best uh, deposits in the world, the best find are copper gold deposit, uh, because those deposits, they last for 50 years. And uh, you, you know, you get the benefit of time and price for so long that you can't miss as a company. And that's why you have companies like, you know, Rio Tinto and BHP. How do they get that big because of these deposits? So if you can, you know, invest in a company that's got one of these, you are, should be doing quite well. So back to your question, I'm indifferent. I think both copper and gold are going to do very well next year. Now, in terms of equities, I think the gold equity should do better than the copper equity simply because they're far more undervalued than the copper equities. Well, that was a great discussion, Pierre, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today and sharing your insights, and I look forward to our next discussion. Thank you, James. Always a pleasure, as I said. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pierre Lasson. If you have any ideas or suggestions on who we should interview in the coming weeks, please drop us a line in the comments section below. We'd love to hear from you. One of the reasons we do these interviews is to help you prepare for your financial future. 
If you would like to speak with someone to assist you in preparing for your financial future, consider having a discussion with a Wealthion endorsed financial advisor at Wealthion.com. After providing some basic information, Wealthion will put you in touch with a vetted advisor, and there's no obligation to work with any of these advisors. It's a free service that Wealthion offers to all of its viewers. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel, Wealthion.com, and also hit that notification button to be kept up to date on future events. We have some amazing content coming up in the coming weeks that will help you prepare for your financial future. Once again, thank you for spending time with us today, and I look forward to seeing you again soon.